Happy New Year, Ed Search listeners, and welcome to 2018. My name is Tony Wan. I'm the managing editor at Ed Search, and I'm filling in this week for your usual host, Jenny Abamu. We hope you all had a restful holiday. Did you make any resolutions? Perhaps you want to write more, eat less, study harder, try new things, or simply take more breaks. Whatever it is, the new year is often a time for us to be optimistic about self-improvement. But how long we stick to these resolutions is another matter. Sometimes it's a matter of will and resolve, or rather, the lack of it. Other times, it's simply a matter of time. In a society where we always want to do more, do better, how do we make the best use of our limited time? That's the topic of a new book from today's guest and author, Dan Pink. You may know him from his books and talks on the factors behind human motivation. Dan's latest work, which draws on research from psychology, biology, and economics, explores how timing impacts every aspect of our lives. Including, of course, education. He shares findings about how timing can impact how effectively students learn and how effectively teachers teach. For example, what's the best time to take a test? Why do kids need more breaks? And when the school day is so packed with back-to-back-to-back classes and activities, how can students, parents, and educators make the best use of that time? We couldn't have come up with a timelier topic. And a more renowned expert to start the new year. Welcome to the Ed Surge on Air podcast. I'm Tony Wan, managing editor at Ed Surge, and I'm this week's host, filling in for Jenny Abamu. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Daniel Pink, a former speechwriter, TV host, business columnist, and author of six books, including the New York Times bestsellers *Drive*, *A Whole New Mind*, and *To Sell Is Human*. His newest book, which will be available on January 9th, 2018, is called "When: The Scientific Secrets to Perfect Timing." Well, Dan, there's one thing. One thing is for sure: you certainly know how to sell ideas and books.、Uh, welcome to the ESRG podcast. Thank you, Tony. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> Great. So, Dan,、um, want to talk a little bit about、uh, what led you to,、um, you know, write your latest book? Um, you know, drive was all about the intrinsic and external factors behind motivation. So, along those lines, what is the motive? What was your motivation behind this latest book about timing? Well,、uh, the main reason I wrote this book is that I wanted to read it.、Uh, I I was making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life. You know, when in a project should I abandon it if it's not working right? When should I do my right? When in the day should I do my writing? Uh, when might it be time, in the course of my lifetime, to consider switching careers and doing something different? When in the day should I exercise? And I realized I was making those decisions in kind of a haphazard way. I wanted to make it in a more systematic way. I started looking around. I realized that there wasn't a comprehensive resource about this. Then I also realized there was a lot of、uh, science behind it. So,、uh, um, and I figured the only way I was going to be able to make sense of it is if I. Figured out the science myself and wrote about it, so that's what I decided to do. But truly, I wrote this book because I wanted to read it, and and I've read it, and it's it's not bad. <laughs> Great. There's a saying that I like, and it goes something like this: "It's that time is what we want most, but what we also use worst." Huh.、Um, you know, in this book, you share some findings that are specific to teaching and learning. And was the education audience a group of readers you had in mind from the beginning? 
Oh, sure. It always is because, uh, you know, because teachers and teachers in particular, educators in general are, 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 you know, strong, you know, very avid readers. And they, among, you know, if you think about all the industries, such as all the industries and domains in American life, educators, are, I think, are really keenly interested in ideas. It's not a book for educators only, but I think there's some there are elements in there that are very germane to educators. And your point with that quotation is extremely well taken. Uh, one of the things I discovered in doing this research is that there is a hidden pattern to our days. And, uh, and we're better off putting certain kinds of work in certain kinds of times of the day. That is, all times of the day are not created equal. And if we understand this underlying pattern, we can begin to, sometimes slightly, sometimes dramatically, reorganize our days so that they're more in sync with when science says we're able to do the best at certain kinds of work. And there are huge numbers of timing effects on, on, on education, whether we're talking at the elementary school level, whether the middle school and secondary school level, even at the college level. Um, you know, in one of your talks about motivation, there's a slide that you have that says there is a mismatch between what science knows and what business does. And it seems like in some of these uh, education-specific uh, cases you share in this book that there's also a mismatch between what science knows and what education does. That's a great point. That's a great point. Let me give you one example of that. So there is, you know, one of the interests, it's interesting to me, I don't know if it's interesting to everybody, but one of the, to me, one of the interesting things in this body of, of research is the, the, the research that was done using gigantic data sets. Uh, even when I first started writing, this was, that was an, un, that was not a very common technique. The tools have improved significantly our access to these giant sets of data has improved significantly. So there's a really interesting study of the Los Angeles. I'll give you two instances of that, Tony. There's a really interesting study of the Los Angeles Unified School District. And what it did is it, it looked at students' grades and also students' performance on standardized tests in math and what it, for elementary school students. And what it found was that students who had math in the morning had higher grades and better scores than students who had math in the afternoon. Now that's pretty amazing because at the building level for when we think about scheduling, we think of it as purely an administrative task. We don't think of it as a pedagogical task. We focus a lot understandably on what's the curriculum we're gonna use. We focus a lot or the best schools do on who's gonna be teaching and are we giving that teacher the proper professional development but we think of when the class is actually scheduled, and, ah, whatever, it's not that material. And it is. Uh, you see, I'll give you another. So if you think about that, um, just the random assignment of kids in an afternoon math class versus a, a, a morning math class is going to affect how much math that kid learns. And that could have a few degrees of tilt in the trajectory of that kid's education life going forward. Give you another example of them. This is again, another piece of big data research. The research comes out of Denmark. It was done by Francesca Gino at Harvard and two Danish researchers. And, I mean, I, and here's, here's what it was. In Denmark, students take standardized tests on uh, computers. Um, but there's a challenge because in a typical Danish school, there are more students than there are computers. So everybody can't take the test at the same time. 
So kids are randomly organized. Some take the test in the morning, some take the test in the afternoon. And it turned out that students who took these, again, elementary school students who took the test in the afternoon did worse than those who took the test in the morning. It was the same population of kids, but the time of day had a huge effect on the kids, uh, on those kids' performance. Now, this could, understandably, I, I would not argue with this, call into question the validity and robustness of standardized testing if there's such a dramatic effect based on time of day. But it also, more important than that, it could give us a false read on, on who's learning. The difference between taking a test in the morning versus taking the, the difference between taking a test in the afternoon versus taking the test in the morning was akin to having missed two or three weeks of school that year. So again, timing wasn't everything, as we like to say, but it was a big thing. Wow. So perhaps there is some logic or reason behind those dreaded 8 a.m. finals that I recall from my college days. Dreaded well, days. it's interesting you say that because it's actually a really bad idea for college students. Oh, okay. um, Tell me because uh, well, let, me tell, let me tell you about that. And, and you know, your listeners and readers know this already, Tony, but so let's talk about teenagers. All right. Let's talk about people when they hit puberty. Some of this goes to what's called our chronotype, which is our propensity to either wake up early or wake up late, to stay up uh, late or to go to sleep early. And uh, this is you sometimes hear it talked about in terms of larks and owls. Some people are larks. They rise early. They... Are they feel energetic in the morning, and then they fade out by evening. Other people go the reverse direction. The truth of the matter is that most of us are in between. Most of us are somewhat larky and somewhat alley, uh, what I call third birds. But people between the ages of about 14 and 24 are very alley. That's, that's a period where, because of puberty, our bodies begin changing, and that shifts our wakefulness forward a couple of hours in many cases. So people go to sleep later in the evening and wake up later in the morning. And so uh, this, is, um, this is one reason why for teenagers in, and, and college students, school typically starts way too early. Mm -hmm. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2014 issued a policy statement that said, please do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. And unfortunately today, the average school start time for teenagers is 8.03 a.m. So most schools, majority of schools, are operating directly in contravention of the recommendation of the nation's pediatricians. Mm -hmm. And it's having a deleterious effect on our kids. The Centers for Disease Control has written about this, about how it has an effect on, on everything from car crashes to obesity to depression. And what's interesting is that schools that have stepped up and pushed back start time for teenagers, and again, nothing crazy. We're talking about starting at 9.15 rather than 7.55. Uh, they have seen pretty dramatic results, uh, big reductions in dropout rates, improvements to standardized test scores, uh, even things like uh, reduced uh, uh, car crashes among teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, this is another case where timing isn't everything, but it's a big thing. It's absolutely nuts that we start school so early for teenagers. Yeah, I mean, I recall back in my high school days, I had zero period, which started at like 7, oh. 7 to 15 in the morning. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> no wonder it was all groggy and grumpy. 
uh, when you know, when I show. But everybody, class. But everybody was, and it wasn't anything about your own moral weakness, Tony. It was it had to do with the fact that you were you you, you had a sixteen year old's chronobiology. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about rhesus and breaks. You know, rhesus is you know one of you know many. I think many kids have fond memories of rhesus in elementary, maybe middle schools. Um, but somehow, you know, we may not make as much time for recess and breaks as we progress, uh, you know, the more advanced stages of education. What's your finding around the importance of, you know, taking a break in the school day? In schools and basically every realm of life, we have dramatically uh, undersold the importance of breaks. Um, I was really blown away by some of this research. I am old enough to remember, you know, 15 years ago when people in a business setting would brag about pulling all-nighters and how little sleep they got and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we thought they were heroes. Now, then the science of sleep emerged and we realized those people aren't heroes, they're fools. And I think the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. Uh, breaks have a huge effect on our performance. Uh, huge. And uh, we should be taking regular systematic breaks, no matter what age we are. But that includes recess. And I think there, let me give you the big picture and then the small picture. The big picture, the science of breaks is telling us that we need to think of breaks not as a concession to weakness. We need to think of breaks not as a deviation from performance, but as part of performance itself. Uh, So for those of us in the professional world, breaks are, taking breaks is what professionals do. It's part of being a professional, just as doing great work is part of being a professional. What for, for kids, um, it's the same, it's the same principles. So for instance, we talked a little bit about those test scores in Denmark. It turns out the remedy for those sagging afternoon test scores is just to give the kids a 20 to 30 minute break ahead of time before the test and their scores go back up. So, um, so I think there's a very hard headed case for recess, even though about 40% of us schools have eliminated recess or, combined it with lunch. The main thing to keep in mind here on breaks is that the science is telling us very, very clearly, breaks are essential to our productivity, to our creativity, and to our overall well-being. And they have to be a more intentional part of our lives. And recesses are how students and schools take breaks. The one thing we shouldn't forget is that teachers need breaks too. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think teachers get nearly the breaks that they need. Right. Uh, and speaking of teachers, um, you have a, you know, some parts of your book where you share, you know, um, glimpses of how teachers can create what you call uh, better and more meaningful endings. Um, right. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that we know, yeah, there's a whole chapter on, on endings. And endings have a big effect on our behavior. They have a big effect in particular on how people encode experiences. And by encode, what I mean is how they evaluate an experience and how they remember it. And so coming up with endings that offer a lift is enormously important in all kinds of business settings. But I found that teachers do a, many teachers do an exceptionally good job of this. So it's really a question of being, as I said earlier, of being intentional about some of these timing issues. In in Nazareth Academy outside of Chicago, named Anthony Gonzalez, he has his seniors, his high school seniors, write a letter to themselves, which he mails to them five years later. Um, and so that's how they end their, uh, that's what they do at the end of, of their time with him. 
Uh, there's another teacher in Des Moines, a choir teacher named Vanessa Brady. On the last day of school, she has her husband bring in griddles and pancakes and syrup, butter and syrup, and they have a make home cake batter, pancake batter for an end of the year pancake day. There's a college professor who I talked to who she takes her students out at the end of a semester and they make toast to each other. Uh, there's another teacher in New Jersey who I talked to who has her students write six word memoirs at the beginning of the year. She hangs them on a clothesline stretched around the perimeter of the classroom. And at the end of the year, they write another six word memoir. They, re they, re they read the earlier one aloud, remove it from the clothesline and then read the new one. Right. And so some of the, so when we're conscious of endings, when we, when we create endings that matter, that offer some elevation, uh, we, um, you know, it, it, it's a powerful moment for, uh, for, for students and teachers alike. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, then that there are sometimes uh, instances where these, uh, you know, these, these endings or these closures aren't provided in the course of a class or a lesson? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, um, you know, when, when things, it's, it's hard, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because a lot of the research is on the power that the presence of ending has. And I'm searching my mind for any research and I can't think of it for that intentional, that, that directly looks at the absence of endings. But I think we can infer that um, in most cases, we're completely blind to the power of endings, the way that endings help us elevate they help us encode experiences. They help us find meaning. And so if we just say, okay, that's it, goodbye, um, you, you know, what's, what that's going to do is that's going to affect um, the student's memory of the entire experience. I'll give you a, a tangible example of this, just for your, for your readers and your listeners. Like, you just go to Yelp and look at restaurant reviews. And what you'll find is that a disproportionate number of restaurant reviews focus on what happened at the end of the meal. Uh, did, the per did the restaurant screw up the check and were they jerks about it? Oh, I hate this place. Did the restaurant offer them a free dessert? I love this place. Did they leave their keys and have a, uh, a server race after them into the parking lot to return their keys? Wow, what a great place. And so endings have a disproportionate effect on how we evaluate entire experiences. And so, you know, educators and the rest of us should be much more attuned and much more intentional about crafting endings that are meaningful. Mm -hmm. And along this notion of, uh, this, of timing, um, you know, in many classrooms, uh, it can look kind of like a chaotic scene with groups and subgroups of students doing, um, you know, different activities at different yeah. times. Uh, you talk a little bit about um, the uh, value of synchronization uh, in this piece, mm -hmm. in your book. Um, what were you able to find or what exercise or what examples were you able to find about that speaks to the value of uh, synchronization in terms of exercises and activities? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the, uh, uh, one of the th aspects of timing that I looked at was how to, as you say, Tony, how to group synchronize in time. And uh, so if you look at, so if you look at this research on how groups synchronize in time, the, um, it tells us some very interesting things. Among them is that when you look at something like choral singing, choral singing is as good for us as exercise at a physical level. It's incredible. So let's say you were to take somebody's a blood draw of somebody before singing in a group and then take someone's blood after singing in a group. 
chances are they're going to have a, a, a stronger, more robust immune response um, afterwards than before. That is, their levels of immunoglobulin are going to increase. Uh, it's really incredible. There's something about when we synchronize with other people that makes us feel good. I think the really cool thing from an education perspective is there's also a lot of research showing that synchronizing with others makes us do good. Um, and so if you, there's a, a really interesting study showing that when you have kids, take two groups of kids and they each play games. One group plays a synchronized game. One group plays a non-synchronized game. The group that plays the synchronized game plays kind of a clap and tap activity where, where they're all clapping and tapping at the same time. And the other group plays a fun game that isn't synchronized. Afterwards, the students who played the synchronized game were much more likely to say, I want to play with a kid I haven't, you know, be open to playing with a kid they haven't met yet, to be more likely to help the teacher. All these behaviors that social psychologists call pro-social. You even see this in something like swing sets. So there's experiments showing you put two kids in a swing. One group uh, swings synchronously. That is, they swing in time with each other. The other group swings asynchronously. They're still on the swing set, living it up. They're just swinging not in sync with each other. The group that swings in sync, again, is more likely to engage in these so-called pro-social behaviors, open to outsiders, helping the teacher, um, being kinder. It's, it's really kind of incredible. And, and I think that the big, this is one of those areas that I found really fascinating, really blew my mind because I had no idea about how powerful this synchronization was. And I think it offers educators uh, a, 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 a very powerful uh, tool that they can use to um, you know, lift up kids' lives. That is, mm -hmm. there's something about synchronizing with others. I don't understand what it is. I don't think we know. But there's something about synchronizing with other people that is uh, meaningful to us, that um, lifts our spirits, that makes us act better, that is fundamentally human. Great. And uh, let's step outside of education just for a little bit and talk about um, broadly uh, more about the role of technology, um, you know, mobile phones, the internet, uh, apps. Um, does, te does technology play a role in kind of your um, research and findings around, you know, best and worst uses of time? I'm asking because, you know, there's this idea that technology is supposed to free up things to give us more time, but you know, somehow we feel, you know, we as a society can feel busier than, than ever before. Um, how does this always on digital age kind of force us to reconsider um, our best uses, uses of time? Yeah, I mean, I don't write a huge amount about this per se. I think that it, it goes in part to how we configure our days. That is, the science of timing tells us that we go through the day, we have a peak period, we have a trough period, and we have a recovery period. And if you are spending your peak period, the period when the science tells us that's when you should be doing your heads down focused analytic work and you're spending it on email, that's a waste. So what we should be doing is putting that kind of administrative stuff into our trough period. Um, we should be single tasking rather than multitasking. And the constant specter of our phone sitting there on our desk, buzzing and beeping, encourages us to multitask, takes us down a path where, where our attention is diverted uh, and it allows, and, and it and it steers us into doing something that we're terrible at. What would your ideal, you know, school day be like? When would you take a test? When would you, um, you know, uh, sit down for more of a lecture lesson? What would what would your ideal school day look like? And well, what I would do again, it depends on the age of the kid. 
So if, if we're talking about teenagers, what I would do is I would start the school day probably around 930. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would offer many more breaks than we have. And um, what I would do is, is, is move. So, so that's the main thing that I would do with the, um, with the, with the, the, the teenage crowd. I think those two interventions for teenagers would be huge. Uh, with elementary school students, maybe some middle school students, um, I, would, I would give them more recesses, not fewer. Uh, but the other thing that I think is pretty clear from the evidence is that we should be doing uh, uh, analytic kinds of work like math, um, maybe reading and writing. Uh, we should be doing those in the morning and other kinds of, of, um, of classes, which are equally important, we should be doing in the afternoon, things like music and art um, and, um, and maybe, even, maybe even PE. The other thing that I would do is I would encourage uh, uh, young uh, elementary school students um, to elementary schools to, um, to really like think about having a choir. I know many schools do, but it, I think it's actually a um, more powerful tool than most of us recognize. Um, but, but again, you know, I, I find that kids are so in school are so, 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 so tightly scheduled. There's mm -hmm. no give in any case. Yeah, and, and, and so, and it, because we think of breaks as a deviation from the school, we think of breaks as like a snow day mm -hmm. um, where, oh my God, it's a break. They're not learning anything. When in fact, it's part of their learning. Right. And what's your, do uh, you have any suggestions for an ideal, um, you know, length of a break for young kids and old kids? You, you know, there isn't, I don't think there is. I don't think we know enough about um, breaks to, to give, you know, say it's 13 minutes or 17 minutes or 23 minutes or anything like that. What we do know for breaks in general for people is that something is better than nothing. Because that's, that's very clear. Even a short break is better than no break at all. Uh, we know that social breaks are better than solo breaks. Uh, even for introverts like me. So um, their breaks taken with other people are often more restorative. Again, even for introverts, which is kind of amazing. Uh, we know that breaks were, and, and recess is a great example of this, breaks where people are moving are more restorative than breaks where people are sedentary. Uh, there's some interesting research showing that breaks that are outside that involve nature are more restorative than breaks that are indoors or don't involve nature, even to the point where Having a taking a break where you can look outside and see a tree is better than taking a break in a room where you can't see a tree. And then uh, we also know, and this is goes to your earlier question, Tony, about technology. Is we know that that fully detached breaks are more restorative than semi-detached breaks. Mm -hmm. So taking your, you know, uh, answering your your email on your phone while you're walking around outside does not count as a break. Uh, breaks should be fully detached, but they needn't be super, super, super long. We're not talking like half hour breaks necessarily or hour breaks. We're talking, you know, for, for a lot of people, uh, 10 minutes might be enough. Yeah, as, as you alluded to earlier, um, the current school day is already so jam-packed to the minute with classes and activities. Um, I mean, as, you know, one you know, closing question, I mean, like, how, what are some of the like high level takeaways that you hope that the, you know, the teachers and the education policymakers take away from this? Well, yeah. I think the highest, the highest level takeaway is this, that, that teachers and all organizations, I mean, schools and all organizations um, are very focused on what we do. What are we going to do? And, and schools are saying, what, like, what are kids going to learn? Uh, how are they going to learn it? Who are they going to learn it with? What's the right mix of, of teacher and, and classmates? Uh, why are we doing this increasingly? But we give short shrift to when. When are we doing all these things? Mm -hmm. And 
The science is telling us that these when questions have a material effect on people's performance. Uh, if you look at the broader population, time of day affects, time of day explains about 20% of the variance in human performance on cognitive tasks. So timing isn't everything, but it's a big thing, and we need to start taking these questions of when much more seriously. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time. My to pleasure. Share some of your findings in your latest book. Uh, it comes out on January 9th. Um, yes. On, online in bookstores everywhere. Yes. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us on the Yet Okay, Tony, podcast. it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Search on Air podcast. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show by taking a moment to give a rating or leave a review. This episode was produced by me, Tony Wan, and we'll be back next week for more conversations on the future of education. Thank you for listening.